We're going to be continuing this series on Elijah tonight, so if you have your Bible with you, um, could you please open it to 1 Kings chapter 17, and it's page 266 on these black church Bibles. If you um, need a Bible, I think there's more available at the back, so you can make your way there if you need one. It's a universal truth, isn't it, that churches always fill from the back to the front. I feel like I'm quite far away from some of you here tonight. Um, we're going to read First um, Kings chapter 17, starting at verse 17. And this passage is following on from the miracle of provision um, that the, the widow and her son had in their household where the jars of oil didn't run out. Um, So this follows on from that and starting at verse 17. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, what have you against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms and he carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on the widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times And cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry. And the boy's life returned to him. And he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Let's pray as we come to this passage. Father, we pray tonight that you would speak to us through your word. Father, we ask that through this passage of scripture you would illuminate our hearts, that we would come into contact with you tonight through your word. May your Holy Spirit open our eyes to what you're saying to us. May he convict us. And and Lord, may we be encouraged tonight as we think of this amazing passage of your word. And um, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, God is um, depicted in many different ways in modern culture today. Um, And I think one of the prevailing views of God is that he's this Werther's original grandfather figure. He's just a a benevolent grandfather in the sky. He's a bit out of touch with modern culture, but he's very accommodating of us if we just be nice to him. He doesn't interfere with the details of our lives. And sadly, I think that view of God has, has penetrated some of our denominations, some of the liberal Protestant denominations have just abandoned the the idea that God is actively involved in our lives. 
and they'd speak about him as if he's irrelevant to our modern day. And one of the big themes as we come to the, the, the life of Elijah, and especially in our passage tonight, is that God is at work. He's at work in the details of our lives. He's involved in the smallest things, the things where we least expect him to be. There he is. Far from being this Werther's original granddad who gives us sweets occasionally but stays on the periphery, God is involved in all of our lives. And in this passage tonight, we're going to see that over and over again, that God is at work. And I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know if you've cried out to God in despair recently. Maybe you're doing it at the moment. Maybe you have some circumstance in your life that's really difficult. Elijah knew what it was to cry out to God in difficult circumstances. The woman in our passage tonight knew what it was to be in difficult circumstances. And she fell into the way of thinking that God must be distant. He must be far away from me. And she questioned what he was up to. So tonight we're going we're gonna to think about this theme of God at work. And we're going to see it in three different ways. God at work in the life of Elijah and this woman. And also God at work in your life, in my life. And firstly, we see that God is at work in the difficult times. Verses 17 and 18 of our passage. As we read, we find ourselves in this passage where Elijah is staying with this widowed peasant woman. They've just been saved from starvation. And this miracle that's, been, um, that's gone on in their house must have left this woman and her son knowing that God was at work. If you'd have asked that woman, is God blessing you? Is he, is he good? I'm sure at that point she would have said, yes, of course he is. Look what he's done in our lives. But as we arrive at verses 17 and 18, the tranquility in this house is broken by the cry of a grieving mother. Her beloved son has died. Nothing she can do can bring him back. And in that moment, the serenity in the household is, is gone forever. Or so she thinks, and this woman is thrown into turmoil. And she cries out in pain, asking Elijah, what's going on here? What's happening? Has God left me? Is God judging me? Are you here to judge me, Elijah? Maybe you've asked that question yourself. Maybe you've gone through or are going through a difficult time in, in your life. Maybe a, a loss, a bereavement. Maybe failing exams or, or the end of a relationship. Maybe you're struggling with your health and, and you're asking that same question, why, God, why is this happening? And God, if you're honest, seems far off and you're hurting. Maybe like the woman in this passage, you feel like you're being punished by a vengeful God who's bringing your sin back to haunt you. That's how this woman felt in the passage. 
she felt like she was being punished for her sins. So I guess a big question is then, does God deal with us like that? Are difficult times in our lives a sign that God is judging us? And we deserve what we're getting because we've sinned in the past. The Bible teaches us as believers that there are times when God will discipline us. Just like a loving father, he he disciplines us to bring us closer to him. To bring us back to what's right. But it would be a really skewed approach to reading the Bible to say that that is the explanation for all difficult things in the life of a Christian. There's so many examples of, of people who go through difficulties and it's nothing to do with their sin. Think of the, the man born blind in John's Gospel and he was sitting by the road and Jesus and his disciples came past and his disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned? Was it this man's parents or, or was it him? So that he's blind. And Jesus responded, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this has happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. And he healed the blind man. Difficulty, but not a result of punishment. Remember Job, the righteous man, He went through terrible times in his life. He lost his children. He lost his estate. He lost his health. Yet God was at work in Job's life. It wasn't because of his sin that he was being punished. It was so that he would come forth like gold, as Job was able to write. And then remember, of course, the great apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of your New Testament carried the gospel to the Gentiles. He begged with God three times to take away a thorn in the flesh. But God said, no. My grace is sufficient for you. When you are weak, then you are strong. So time and time again, Scripture tells us that in the midst of our difficulties, God is at work. Not necessarily punishing us, but working in us something that will be glorious once it's finished. So your struggles, your trials are not wasted. Maybe sometimes when we're going through difficult times, it feels like our life is on pause. You ever felt like that, where it feels like nothing good can come out of this season? Well, what we learn in this passage tonight and through all of Scripture is that that is never the case. God is always working behind the scenes. And so it was with this woman in our passage. She's just lost her son. She's crying out for answers. And she symbolically hands the dead body of her son to Elijah. It's over as far as she's concerned. And we're going to see later on in the passage that God is actually doing a wonderful thing as he lets her go through this heartbreaking experience. But right now, she doesn't know it. At the start of the passage, she doesn't know it. She doesn't feel it. God seems distant, or worse, he seems vengeful. And her emotions tell her that she's being judged. And if we're honest, I think all of us would say that would be how we would probably react too 
if we were in that situation. I certainly think I would. But the encouragement tonight as we go through this passage is that we are to trust God when we go through difficulty, that he is at work. He's bringing his purposes to completion in your life. And sometimes the most difficult thing to do in those moments is to trust him when it just doesn't feel like he's doing anything. So, our passage teaches us tonight that we can remember that God is at work, firstly, in the difficult days. Secondly, God is at work in bringing new life. Verses 19 to 23. Now, no doubt Elijah, given his his history of all his difficulties and then coming into this situation, no doubt he would have felt a bit exasperated in this situation. This family who he'd been involved in blessing is, is now falling apart. He's handed the body of this dead son. And the woman cries out at him, what have you done? Have you come here to kill my son? I think Elijah must have been a bit rattled. Elijah decided to go and confront the situation and he takes the boy to his room. And he cries out to God in prayer. He cries out to God to heal, to restore life to this son, to this boy. And when he's calling out to God, the passage says that he lies down on him three times. And then comes the breakthrough. And this boy who was dead takes a breath. And he comes back to life and Elijah takes him back down to his mum and says, Look, your son is alive. Now, this passage is a bit weird. I think we can grant it that. It's, it's not the kind of thing you read every day. But I think that this passage teaches us something about the process of God bringing new life. And before we go into the mechanics of what was going on in the passage I think we need to remember who it is that's bringing new life here. We read in verse 22, it says, God heard Elijah's cry. It was God who heard Elijah's cry for help. And it was God who brought new life to this boy. Elijah was just an ordinary man calling on an extraordinary God. And we're reminded of that in James where he writes about Elijah in James 5.17 and he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah, in other words, wasn't anything special. So that takes away the excuse that we might have when we read these passages and we think, well, well, that's Elijah. You know, Elijah was the great prophet. So all these amazing miracles happen. Things like that don't happen with ordinary folk like me. But that's not the case. Elijah was just an ordinary guy who called on an extraordinary God. So this passage tells us that God is at work in bringing new life. He he specializes in that. Bringing new life to people who are lost in their sins, bringing new life to those who are in the gutter, who have no hope, who feel like life is not worth living. 
He's at work. He specializes in bringing new life to the darkest of souls. And he can raise people from the dead, not just physically, but spiritually. And he can do it here. He can do it right here tonight for you. I think sometimes as conservative evangelicals, we maybe fail to emphasize God's ability to do the miraculous. Sometimes we fail to emphasize that God can do the impossible. And if we're honest, I think sometimes I'm certainly guilty of lowering my expectations of what God can do. And I think this passage and this amazing miracle calls us to raise our expectations of God. A.W. Tozer reminds us, anything God has ever done, he can do now. Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. Anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do for you. Elijah believed in the God of the miraculous and he called out to him to bring the boy back to life. And perhaps we need to be reminded that we serve the same God as Elijah and that we shouldn't place a limit on his abilities, place no caveats on his power. God is at work in the world and he can bring new life. And he does it for this peasant woman's son. And he's able to do it for you tonight if you don't know him. He's able to do it for your, your family member, your colleague, your neighbor, the person in your sports team, the person in your university class. God is in the business of bringing new life. But notice the process that Elijah goes through as this miracle happens. As I said, it's a bit weird. He has to endure this rather unpleasant process of, of lying down on the body of this deceased boy three times. And there's some debate about why he did this. There's some debate about why he did it three times. But tonight, I don't want to get into the, the trivia or the arguments either way. I want to make a more basic point about this passage, about this section. And that basic observation is, it's a bit disgusting for Elijah to have to do this, touching a dead body. And I think there's a lesson for us in that. As we seek to bring transformation, as we seek to bring the gospel to the world, as we seek to see our communities transformed in Tilly-Drone and around here and in our city, Sometimes that means that we're going to have to come into contact with dead stuff. Sometimes that means that we're going to have to be willing to go up close, to form relationships, to enter into things that we probably would rather have nothing to do with. And people, we probably, if we're honest, would rather have nothing to do with. Elijah was willing to touch up against dead stuff so that new life, would come. And I remember as a street pastor 
um, we had a, a, a gathering one Saturday and we had a, a teaching session and this was the passage that the, the person who was speaking chose to use and they said if we're going to transform this city if we're going to get into the, the darkest parts of this city we have to be willing to touch up against dead stuff now and again and it's not going to be pleasant it's not going to be comfortable but if we're going to see the city changed for Jesus we're going to have to be willing to go to places we'd probably rather not We're not going to change the city by staying in our nice centrally heated churches at 11 o'clock on Sundays. We need to be willing to go out into the places where the darkness is. That's what Jesus did. He didn't keep his distance. He didn't stay away. He moved into the neighborhood. He left the throne room of heaven. He touched those around him. He ate with them. He shared life with them. Even those who were sinners, in fact, no, especially those who were sinners. That was the the charge against him, wasn't it? He eats and drinks with sinners. So let me ask you, are you getting close to the people around you so that you might share the life-giving message of Christ? Are you touching the dead stuff in our culture that it might be renewed by the saving power of Jesus? I'm convinced that God is calling us in our generation not to form evangelical bunkers where we hide away and enjoy our nice Christian festivals and get-togethers. But he's asking us to get close to those around us who don't know him. God is able to bring new life. That's not in question. What's in question is, are we willing to go with that message to those around us? Are we willing to faithfully engage with them so that they see the gospel embodied? I know know Mission Week's coming up for you um, students, and we'll be praying towards a, a really great harvest as you do that, but let me encourage you to continue befriending those who are in your courses, those who are in your sports teams, in your societies. People are much more likely to embrace the gospel if they see it embodied in your life. Often before we share good news, it makes sense to be good news, to see that gospel message embodied, gives it credibility for people. Jesus didn't just send a telegram to earth. He came himself to laugh with us, to bear with us, to cry with us, ultimately to die for us. And that is a message that needs to be embodied in community, in society, so that people can be confronted with it. The gospel is a message to share. Of course it is. We should share it every opportunity but it's also a message to be embodied in how we live. So God is at work, firstly, in the difficult times. Secondly, he is at work in bringing new life. And thirdly, God is at work through his word. Verse 24. This passage ends with the woman affirming her trust in the God of Israel. 
She says that she now knows that Elijah is a man of God. No doubt her faith journey has been a pretty rocky one through this this passage. She starts off on a high. She's just seen God provide for her and her son. Then she has the terrible low of losing her son. And then when it seems like all is lost, God restores him to life. So she's gone from questioning God's dealings, questioning Elijah and his identity, to now being able to say at the end of verse 24, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. And this is a really important point. And actually, I would argue this is the climax of this passage, even more so than the boy being raised from the dead. This woman confesses that the word of the Lord from Elijah's mouth is the truth. Now, truth is a category that's under attack today in our society, perhaps more so than ever before. People in the West are are starting to, to shy away from making truth claims don't want to be seen as exclusive or or dogmatic. I was even reading this week that there's now a category of atheists um, called nominal atheists who aren't willing to, to kind of make any claims of truth because they don't want to be identified with people like Richard Dawkins. And in that way, even atheism is, is, is falling back because people just don't want to make truth claims anymore. Why is all that so important? Well, the Bible and even this peasant woman in our passage affirms the importance of truth. She says, now I know that what you say is true. That's a huge statement to make. In fact, if there was a reason we can discern why God allowed this whole circumstance to develop with her son dying and being brought back to life it may well be that it was so that this woman came to this realization that God's word is true she says now I know you are speaking the very words of God you might ask in our day what is truth anyway I mean what do you mean when you say truth isn't it just a matter of opinion Isn't it just one person's opinion against another? Seems to be the way a lot of people are going these days. But I believe the Bible would say that truth is deeper. It's absolute. It's unshakable. Even in our post-truth age, I think people are looking for truth. They're looking for something to cling on to. They're looking for a reference point in the midst of a moving landscape. We're told again and again in the Bible that God's words are true. Truth as a category exists. We have something to share with our society. There is such a thing as right and wrong. There is such a thing as truth and falsehood. And these notions being challenged in our day actually allows us 
to penetrate in a way that perhaps we couldn't have done 50 years ago. So what can we take from the affirmation that God's words spoken through Elijah are true? Well, it means that we can trust that same God of Elijah when he says he will do something. When he promises to act, we can trust that he will act. When he says he will provide, we can trust that he will provide. When he opens up a way of salvation so that we can be saved, we can trust that that invitation is genuine. The God of Elijah is the same God that we serve today. He is trustworthy. He is truth. And actually we see that embodied um, nowhere better than in Jesus Christ himself. You might remember in John 17 when Jesus is praying for his disciples, he says, make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus knew that if his disciples were to become more holy, that they needed to pursue the truth. And more than that, Jesus actually embodied the truth himself. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He also said, I have come that you may know the truth, and that the truth may set you free. Perhaps you're listening to this message tonight and you don't know that truth for yourself. You haven't realized that you were created for a purpose by a loving God. Created to worship Him and to serve Him forever. Created to have freedom from a life of sin. Freedom from an eternity of condemnation that Jesus bought on the cross for you. Knowing the truth, not just truths, but knowing the truth personified, you can be set free to live life as God intended. A life pulsating with meaning and purpose. Free from the chains of sin and death. The peasant woman in our passage saw that power of God at work in her home. And through this, probably one of the most difficult experiences of her life, losing her son and seeing him raised to life again, she saw God at work. And she realized that God's words are true. And as I've said, it's the same God that Elijah served that we serve here tonight. He wants you to accept him, his offer of salvation, He wants to work through you if you're a believer. He wants you to touch the dead parts of our society. The parts that nobody wants to go near so that he can bring transformation. You know, when we place our trust in Christ, we're suddenly awakened to the importance of truth. And we can see it in all of creation. When we embrace Christianity, we we see a coherence to the world around us that maybe we didn't see before. We also see a beauty that the the songs of the birds just seem that bit sweeter. The colors of nature just seem that bit more appealing. We see everything through a new lens. C.S. Lewis 
put it this way. He said, I believe in Christianity the same way I believe the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The Christian worldview is the only coherent way to view life, its origins, its meaning, the questions of morality and our ultimate destiny. All the big questions of life are answered in the one who Elijah pointed forward to. Elijah was a great prophet, but he pointed forward to Jesus Christ. Elijah had the words of truth, but Jesus is the truth. And so as we think about this passage tonight, I want you to remember that God is at work. And I hope it's an encouragement to you, especially tonight if you're going through difficult times, to remember that God is at work in those difficult days. And if you're praying for someone to come to faith, I hope it's an encouragement to you to remember that God is at work in bringing new life. And I think it's helpful to all of us to be reminded that God is at work through his word, his written word and through the word himself, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are at work in our lives and work in our world. Father, we thank you that as we, we think of our city, there is no need to be in despair because you are at work in these streets, even in the homes where people don't profess you as Lord and Savior, you are there. And God, we pray that by your Spirit, you would continue to work, continue to prompt, to convict, to bring new life to our city, to our nation. And Father, would you help us to be like Elijah, to be willing to call on you, to cry out to you to come and save. And Father, would you help us to trust you, to remember that you are at work and and even especially in our difficult days. You are not absent. You are not the grandfather on the periphery. But you are actively involved in our lives. And, and, And Lord, we just pray you'd help us to trust you. I pray for anyone who's going through difficulty tonight that you would encourage them. I trust you. And Father, as we sing now, we pray that you would help us to worship you, to proclaim that you are the author of creation. You're the Lord of every man. And your cry of love rings out across the land. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.